Hi, everybody, and thanks for joining our weekly podcast. I'm Robin Lewis, founder and CEO of The Robin Report, uh, which, by the way, is much more than a daily report. I'd like to remind people that it's really a knowledge platform uh, from which we communicate thought leadership on various strategic topics through our reports, yes, but also these podcasts, as well as webinars, and hopefully (laughs) sometime in the near future, live events. So along with our chief strategist, Shelley Cohan, who's also a professor at FIT and Syracuse University, we welcome you uh, to our weekly podcast. And today's topic is the cresting wave of retail. You know, when I was thinking about retailing over the past year and a half, Shelley, in, in the time we are living in, uh, Charles Dickens' classic book, The Tale of Two Cities, uh, came to mind. You know, that book was written around the time of the French Revolution. And he said, it's the best of times and it's the worst of times. Obviously, commenting on some of the profound gaps between the haves and the have-nots, which, by the way, current famed French economist Thomas Piketty uh, compared our huge income gap um, as a harbinger of a potential revolution. But but that's economics, okay, and we're not going to go there. But for retail, I would say it's the most exciting time and it's the most challenging time. Because, as you know, Shelley, we are right smack in the middle of arguably the biggest and most profound transformation in the history of retailing. And it's so profound that, in my opinion, we are and will continue to redefine uh, retailing. Well, Robin, in your book, The New Rules of Retail, which you co-authored, you discuss the four waves. So wave one was the producer power. That's like 1850 to 1950. And that's when many people really lived in rural areas or small towns. And demand, consumer demand, was actually higher than supply. So early on in the mid-1800s, 60% of the population actually lived in rural areas. Not easy to get stuff to, nor is it easy to get stuff to consumers. So that 1,000-page Sears catalog did actually bring the stuff into their homes. Yeah, that was phenomenal. They, they waited there out in, the, in their farm and <laughs> waited in the living room for that Muncie catalog anyway. Um, but then comes wave two, right? That's, that's between 1950 and 1980. Um, during that period, the United States had the most explosive growth of any country in all of history. And one of the big, biggest catalysts was the creation of the interstate highway system, which was launched in 1954. And guess what followed? Um, suburban communities and mobile America took off like a meteor. And along with it, a retailer on every highway intersection and throughout the suburbs in the mid-1960s, Walmart, Target, Kmart, were launched, and even Sears accelerated their expansion into shopping centers. But, of course, they still maintain their catalogs. Department stores expanded and branched out across the suburbs, all 
quickly followed by thousands of specialty chains. And later, even more discounters, off-pricers, and big box category killers like uh, Toys R Us, Bed Bath & Beyond, Home Depot, and others. Yeah, supply growth and amazing competition and competitive expansion for sure. It was the beginning of supply really outpacing demand. And I think you call this the wave of marketing power. Yeah. And wow, <laughs> that is the whole Mad Men period, Shelley, an advertising marketing explosion. Why? Because there was <laughs> more supply than demand. Companies had to lure customers to brands. Therefore, advertising and marketing, was, it was a golden age of advertising, uh, which, by the way, a little personal note here, while I was at Gray Advertising as an account executive, I also enjoyed those three martini lunches, <laughs> uh, which too bad I can't do anymore. Um, anyway, then comes wave three and the power of the consumer simply as population demand and growth began to slow starting in the early 80s, supply and retailing did not. It was just more, more, and more, and more here, there, and everywhere. So off pricing and discounting became the low-hanging fruit, if you will, um, price essentially price promoting. And it's still somewhat dominant today, as we know. Um, as, as simply, it became the easiest and quickest way to win the consumer's purchase and, of course, growth. Uh, thus, our phrase uh, describing the era as share wars, essentially stealing a competitor's share for growth. I love that term, share wars. It's during that time that we also see that supply really begins to outpace demand in a major way. U.S. market becomes overstored, oversorted, and oversaturated with products. We also begin to see the rise of experiential retailing to compel customers beyond price promoting, as you had mentioned in the book. Yeah, and uh, lo and behold, wave four, whammo, technology. Uh, early in the 2000s, nobody really knew what the awesome transformational power of the internet and everything attached to it would be. And it, you know, continuing to this day, really. And the absolutely enormous impact it would have on retailing, and frankly, uh, all consumer-facing businesses. So here we are, Shelley, and uh, you and I have been nailing all of the strategic and structural shifts driven and strengthened by technology, right alongside with the huge shifts in consumers' shopping behaviors and their expectations, and how both will continue forward into the future. Well, reflecting back on the past year and a half, there's really been some major shifts in the industry, you know, with the consumer. And all of these have really been strengthened by technology or wave four. And as I like to say, the cresting wave, you know, some major macro issues that are really out of the control of the industry, but will have at least some direct or indirect impact on consumer shopping behavior now and most likely into the future. COVID-19, of course, top of mind 
for everyone. Um, there are new unknowns almost daily, which really makes forecasting difficult, nearly impossible. We're going to circle back to this in a few minutes. We have climate change, and believe it or not, Robin, more and more violent natural disasters are occurring, and they do have negative outcomes for both retailers and consumers. And we have to talk about the global supply chain collapse. And while this was really not directly caused by retailers and businesses in general going forward, all consumer-facing industries are going to have to work together to create demand-driven, seamlessly integrated, transparent, and collaborative chains. And I even, I even use the word supply unchained because we really right. have to get away from this you know, model of linear uh, supply chain. But I do understand that billions of dollars of venture capital and early stage um, investment money is now being firehosed into these promising and innovative tech-driven logistics firms. Another persistent macro challenge is really the unstable economy and specifically the threat of stagflation and the extreme polarization of politics and its effects on an already sclerotic government bureaucracy, and it seems to be getting worse. A hollowed out middle class, extreme income gaps between the haves and the have-nots is a long-term and potentially a major threat to our form of capitalism. And also in the bucket of macro issues is an, another unknown culprit, a labor shortage due to people quitting their jobs, not returning to work after COVID lockdowns, and seeking new career paths. So the no November quit rates just came out. They were up 27% from last November. And I highlight some of the key issues in the article that launched this past week in the Robin Report called Power Plays, this massive shift of power from employer to employee. And we did this in our podcast, uh, the one called I Quit, The Rise of Employee Power. So this troubling trend really includes workers demanding higher wages, a work from home schedule, other benefits, all of which adds to inflationary issue. I don't mean to be insensitive to the needs of the workforce, but from a macro perspective, this will cause more economic instability. Maybe, Robin, this is wave five. Absolutely, Shelley. You know, when the book was written, obviously we could not see these additional waves. Anyway, Speaking of consumer power, Shelley, which really is at its, uh, it's, it's at its highest, it's omnipotent, it really runs everything, um, they are now in total control. They really do drive all strategic and structural shifts in this industry. Um, their behavior uh, during the pandemic also represented a massive shift in their shopping expectations. And the consumer cohorts that are the most important in these shifts right now and into the future are the millennial and Gen Z segments. Well, we should probably talk about some of the key takeaways for retail as we start into 2022. And I'll start with, you know, the customers really want this personalized shopping experience, both online and offline, which has to be seamless. They want personal interaction. They expect <clears throat> The retailer or brand to know what products they personally favor. Yeah, and they also uh, demand the option, you know, of ordering a list of goods from wherever they are to be shopped by a third party and then delivered. You know, think shipped, which Target now owns. 
Instacart, um, Uber Eats, drones, you know, or others. Uh, and delivery should be free and in a 10-minute to a same-day or one-to-two-day one time frame. I mean, this is bizarre. Um, or, or they want the option of buying online, picking up in-store, on the parking lot, or delivered from the store. And when shopping in physical stores, they prefer small neighborhood locations assorted with their personal preferences and local artisanal goods. They also expect a degree of local and communal engagement and along with meaningful events. Yeah, and then for the, for the when shopping in the larger flagship stores, uh, they also expect a very high level of uh, service, personalization, and uh, locally relevant merchandise. There's also a growing expectation, Shelley, that um, to discover other, that, that to discover other brands they love from a competing brand's store, um, all in one place to make their shopping efforts more efficient and enjoyable. There's this whole growing thing of, of, of you know, like Kohl's, you know, pulling Sephora into, uh, they're setting up a shop within Kohl's. You've got Ulta and Target and on and on. We might revisit this in a few minutes. But finally, the point here is there's a growing demand among younger consumers that retailers and brands must also champion social justice. They must support sustainability and environmental issues and drive for diversity, equity, and inclusion in their workplaces. And let's not forget the massive changes that are coming. And what I briefly mentioned earlier, supply unchained, this massive system currently referred to as supply chain is plagued by an antiquated model. The term chain implies, and rightly so for now, that if a link is broken, the, chain, the whole chain fails. So as companies emerge from the pandemic, to be successful, they really have to complete a supply network or ecosystem that really involves great collaboration, the ability to flex and change quickly when needed with multiple sourcing options, onshore, offshore, nearshore capabilities, and many suppliers to feed into the network. So while certainly what I just described is significantly more complex than the traditional linear model, the flexibility really allows for businesses and business continuity when disruption does occur. Yeah, and, and um, there's another major shift, Shelley, in, in, in how major retailers are shifting from the old brick-and-mortar retail store and how they view that and how they related to that. They see it as a platform today. For example, as online shopping continues to grow, obviously driving a de decrease in big store square footage, Kohl's, Target, Macy's, Nordstrom, and others are discovering, as I mentioned before, that inviting other retail brands with great synergies, even if they're competitors, uh, to operate as shops within their stores. Obviously, of course, as long as they align with the same consumers. Uh, this model uh, delights consumers by being a true one-stop shop. 
And Robin, the digital native brands like Amazon, Warby Parker, Rent the Runway, and others, they've really learned that a strong brick and mortar presence is a necessity for rapid growth. And it's easier, less costly in terms of customer acquisition efforts. So most are now pursuing that omni-channel model with Amazon leading the way. And also, instead of operating solely out of a distribution center, Amazon finally understood that its nemesis, Walmart, has a physical store on average within 10 miles of 90% of the U.S. population. And Shelly, uh, to maintain the agility to be, I guess, maximally responsive to these changing consumer demands, a seamlessly integrated omnichannel is an absolute necessity. Financially engineered spinoffs, which I've written about, are a short term fool's folly. As we podcasted uh, that topic, um, this is a short-term tactic for a quick buck for money-hungry investors. There is no long-term advantage and no consumer benefit at all. I love how you ended our podcast today, Rob, and the spinoff craze. It's really short-sighted. And I think we actually had two podcasts on that topic recently. So for our listeners, you can find more of our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Buzzsprout, and therobinreport.com. And please follow us on social media, link in with us, and follow us on Twitter for the latest thoughts about the industry. And I want to sign off by thanking all of our listeners again today, and also mention, as I do every Friday, that if any of you have a topic that you would like Shelly and I to tackle and discuss, uh, please email me at robin at therobinreport.com. And thanks so much again.